You're listening to the Oh Yeah Dig It Podcast Show on Anchor FM and the Magic Squirrel Network. Hey everyone, welcome to the Oh Yeah Dig It Podcast Show. I'm Justin Gregory, the most famous nobody you never met with a new podcast show you've never heard of until now. I'm super excited to share this podcast with you guys, and I want to be able to give you folks a fresh take on nostalgia and pop culture. That's what the Oh Yeah Dig It podcast show is all about, pop culture. The Oh Yeah Dig It podcast show was created by myself after I began listening to a couple podcast shows beginning in the fall of 2018. I was really enjoying the background stories from legitimate sources, especially in things like pro wrestling, which I'm a huge mark for. I mean, I'm a really big fan. It's like documentary for my ears. Ultimately, I had a few realizations. One, I like stories, wrestling stories to be exact. Two, hey, I like to talk too. And three, this podcast thing is pretty kick-ass. So me being a man of a million ideas and a completer of maybe one, I think I just made up a word there. Uh, Well, I thought I can do it myself too. So I wanted to get together with some people and start my own podcast. Well, that didn't work out the way I thought it would, but that's okay. I went back to the drawing board, and here I am. This is what I got. So with that, I thought, well, what the hell am I going to talk about? I realized there were so many podcasts out there about so many things that I probably wasn't going to be able to talk about anything that wasn't already touched upon. But that's cool. That's cool. Because this podcast show, is, it's my opinion. It's my, my experiences. And whoever else I end up bringing on the show or what I talk about Uh, from a factual basis. That's what it's going to be about. Um, With that being said, I think it's a point to make a little bit of an introduction about, you know, myself, your host with the most. (laughs) Um, My mom was a single mom, you know, back in the day. I'm an 80s kid. I was born in 1980. And when you're a kid of a single mom, you really probably don't have much. A lot of you probably can relate. So, uh, you know, she raised me on the simple things like music. And she always made sure like I had paper and pencil to draw on or color uh, because I'm a traditional artist and all that. Now, I would say kind of professional, like, you know, get paid sometimes to do things. And that's cool. Uh, But with that being said, you know, I fell in love with the toys that I could afford or she could afford, I should say. Um, You know, movies mostly, uh, obviously, and music Um, and uh, wrestling. Of course, pro wrestling was a big deal to me. And um, also those big, huge 7-Eleven Slurpees that came with the promotional cup. I love those things. Uh, So, yeah, you know, my upbringing, it wasn't really all that bad. Um, But let's fast forward a little bit. Okay, like I said, my name is Justin Gregory. I was born in Pennsylvania. I call a major city in Maryland my hometown. Uh, It's Baltimore. Uh, And currently reside in Ohio with my wife and my two children. Like I said, I'm a traditional illustrator and painter. And I love pop culture from the 80s, 90s, and the 2000s. And that's a lot of where my uh, artwork is based off of this nostalgia. That's what inspires me a lot. Uh, And that's a lot of what's going to be inspiring this podcast show. Uh, Which kind of brings us full circle back to why I decided that a podcast show will be an ever-evolving variety podcast show about pop culture from the 80s, 90s, and the 2000s. And you're probably like, well, what do you mean by variety show or ever-evolving? Well, the idea is that I'm going to focus, um, you know, on things gradually so I can ascend into great content. Like that's the whole thing about this. I want to build great content for you guys. Um, 
I want to have different formats for uh, my podcast and my listeners, you guys. So to control that a bit, the idea is that some episodes will be like a breakdown review of, say, a popular toy or product from a long time ago. Maybe I will have episodes where I do what I call a view for you, where I view a movie and break it down as I watch it, adding tidbits of fun facts. And eventually, uh, my intention is for the Oh Yeah Dig It podcast show to get enough notoriety and attention to garner actual guests and or co-hosts. I'd also like to do like Q&A sessions and interviews with the people who were a part of some of the subject matter I'm going to be talking about because I think it's kind of a cool idea and adds a sense of genuity to the content when I actually have like people who were in the know or like part of the process of these things that became nostalgia history for us, um, the fans of pop culture. Um, and I do plan on staying active on my social media with you guys and doing polls to come up with future shows. Right now I'm going to just do like a bi-weekly uh, episode format, I'm going to be releasing two episodes a month until I can devote a little more time. Like I said, I do have a small family, but uh, it, it gets hectic. Uh, a lot of you with family know it's a busy schedule. Um, but I plan on staying active on my social media sites. I do have a Facebook and I do have um, a Twitter. Uh, you can find me at, on Twitter at Oh Yeah Dig It Show. And my handle on Facebook is at Oh Yeah Dig It. Um, the uh, important thing about that is you guys are going to shape a lot of the content and the future episodes. Um, I want your comments and critiques and any questions you may have, suggestions, everything. Um, you know, like I said, this is going to be a biweekly thing because I want to have that time for now to be able to like get back to you guys and really like dive into my material. And give you guys a genuine product. Um, this is my dream. This is my wish. You know, I'll cue the Goonies reference there. Um, so I really believe that you know, through the social media and listener support, that the Oh Yeah Dig It podcast show is going to be something truly special. You know, I want you guys to know that my show will be available on Anchor FM and the Magic Squirrel Network. Um, and from there, I plan to move on to any other podcast. Uh, networks that I can. Um, I want to thank everybody for supporting me on my endeavors to this point and the future. And I promise, aside from my opinions and personal experiences with subject matter, that is the most you'll hear about me. <laughs> and without further ado, the first episode of the Oh Yeah Dig It podcast show is going to get into the blockbuster hit of 1985, Solar Babies. Don't mind the brief pause. I am slow. The all-new Chevy Silverado. The official truck of real people. They drained the ponds and the streams covered the lakes and even the ocean so no water could evaporate into the air. They caused the drought so they can control our lives. It can't beat them. Protectorate visionaries eventually planned a totally altered Earth and even an altered solar system. Why not genetically alter humans to function perfectly 
and a perfectly restructured world. So obviously from the heavy narration and synthesized action sequences, you could probably tell this was not a masterpiece. Solar Babies was released on November 26, 1986, because why not when its only viable holiday competition at the time was Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. It grossed $1.6 million on a $26 million budget. I smell success. No, I do not. I happened upon Solar Babies through the movie uh, TV streaming app Tubi. Uh, Tubi describes Solar Babies' cast as Hollywood's new generation because the talent included Jamie Gertz, Lucas Haas, Jason Patrick, and yes, everyone's favorite undercover cop of 21 Jump Street fame, Doug Penhall, a.k.a. Peter DeLuise. The premise of the movie is... <laughs> this is really shitty. Amidst a post-apocalyptic atmosphere where one group of orphan teens who are prisoners in a fortress plan an exciting escape via a glowing ball and some kind of hybrid sport of lacrosse and disc golf, all the while on roller skates, with a supporting theme of there being so little water in this country or world that not even the inhabitants or these forgotten children don't even know what water is. I want to talk about the rest of the cast here, because without them, this movie would still be the big piece of crap it still is. So as the movie opens, we are presented with the bright orange and yellow gradient title shot and whimsical synth sci-fi music that is a prerequisite for all 80s action sci-fi movies. And then cast credits roll in. And that's right, Richard Jordan gets top billing. Richard Jordan. I was like, who the fuck is this guy? So of course, I googled this apparent huge star and he actually is considered a Hollywood legend of his time in plays and film. Uh, some of the more notable films Jordan acted in were Logan's Run, Dune, and The Secret of My Success, and The Hunt for Red October. His character, Grok, in Solar Babies, was the inspiration for the film adaptation of M. Bison in the 1994 mega-blockbuster hit Street Fighter, based off of the video game of the same name. Google image Grok and change my mind. Uh, it's literally as if someone in the costume department for Street Fighter found the Grok outfit in a discarded pile of old film costumes and said, Hey, we could save a good amount of money if we just use this and paint it red. Change my mind. Moving on to the real stars of the Solar Babies, you have Jamie Gertz, who plays Tara in Solar Babies. 
which means land or earth. And I find this kind of funny because a year later she plays Star in The Lost Boys. I don't know if Solar Babies and The Lost Boys is like some crazy alternate universe shit, but uh, someone was on The Lost Boys like, what should we call this chick? Well, she was Tara in Solar Babies. Damn, I like it, but can't use it. Too soon. What's another cool celestial name? Oh, I know. Star. I don't know. Just a weird coincidence. It's kind of weird and funny to me. And this now brings us to Jason Patrick. Jason Patrick plays our male hero in Solar Babies. Jason. That's right. Jason. Because what is a perfect counterpart name to Tara or Grok? Jason. I wonder if this being Jason Patrick's earliest roles, uh, one of his earliest roles, I should say, the writers were worried he wouldn't remember a film name, so they made uh, it easy on him. He's the hero, or captain, per se, of the film. But he really he, he doesn't really do shit. Like, uh, you know, he's just kind of like skating around with the rest of them. And, uh, you know, but uh, if you're not familiar with Jason Patrick, his most notable role in film, ready for this? Alex in Speed 2, Cruise Control. <laughs> just playing. He was Michael in The Lost Boys, and he was also in Sleepers. Solar Babies also stars the wide-eyed baby doe face of the 80s actor Lucas Haas. Lucas plays Daniel, the ever-curious, doesn't listen to anyone for shit because he found a ball of light preteen in the group. He built his star power before Solar Babies in the 1985 Amish thriller Witness, which also starred Harrison Ford, whoever that guy is. Uh, Lucas Haas was also Frankie Scarlatti in Lady in White, if you've ever seen that, which is about a little wide-eyed baby doe-faced boy who gets locked in a school coat room and solves a girl's murder from years prior. Oh, and it's Halloween. Uh, as noted, Peter DeLuise is in this. If you don't know for... Uh, if you don't know, four words, eight syllables, Dame de Louise, 21 Jump Street. Moving on, Claude Brooks is in this movie, and he plays Rabbit. He battle raps Daniel after they disagree on the proper pronunciation of the glowing ball of hopes and dreams. Uh, Daniel found. Proceed. Finishing out the group of savage roller skaters is the Gen Xer's very own version of Dick Miller, James LaGrasse, who plays Metron, the brain of the group. People who aren't pop culture nerds like me probably don't know who James LaGrosse is, but he was uh, Rick in Drugstore Cowboy, uh, Andy in Singles, and my personal favorite, Roach from Point Break. You know, the original one with Keanu Reeves and the immortal Patrick Swayze. Uh, not that shitty remake from like five years ago. He was also in Zodiac and Skateland. Google him and you'll be like, oh yeah, that guy. Meh. The dark brooding vigilante of this movie is Darstar or as I refer to him, Der Star, who is played by Adrian Pazdar, who plays lawyers and shit, but mostly played in Natalie Maines of the Dixie Chicks reproductive organs, as they have two kids and were married up until 2017. When she realized he would be a detriment to the Dixie Chicks return tour, I'm kidding about that last part. Kind of. You can figure out which part. Charles Durning is in this too. He, ha he is the narrator in The war Warden, uh, he is the first supplier of water we actually see on film as he sweats like a broke dam about to burst. Uh, that's a little foreshadowing for you, by the way. Um, so this gem of sci-fi film work opens with the narrator, a.k.a. the warden, spoiler, lamenting about the orphans um, here in the year 41, a thousand years after I guess what used to be current times. 
uh, or the current situation? I have no idea. But he has a disdain for his job. He stares at teens while sweating. Uh, he has a disdain for their pain, his pain everywhere, pain, pain. He hopes the world can go back to what it once was, how he remembers it, 41 years ago. Or was it a thousand years ago? The scenery of Solar Babies is like so many other post-apocalyptic movies. Sand, square buildings, muted colors, and flashlights on roller skates in a random skate park filled with graffiti in the desert. This immediately reminds me of Mad Max or The Road Warrior without the Tina Turner. Uh, what really gets me about, or excuse me, what really sets the movie apart from other post-apocalyptic movies is Tire Town, the ragtag city that appears to be constructed from previous times trash. So now uh, <laughs> we have the clean austerity of the prison amid the desert and rocks, which make it come off like a galactic precursor to the Flintstones when they show the persons working in the desert. Uh, what are they even trying to find? I have no idea. Uh, probably water, but it's a desert, so obviously there would not be fucking water, right? I don't know. Um, we have the skate park that is only accessed at night to play this game of small ball tossing into a disc golf goal because that's not dangerous uh, because they have flashlights on the roller skates. And Tire Town, a recluse city of mercenaries and squatters who find shelter in rubber makeshift canopies, I guess? So in terms of post-apocalyptic sets, Solar Babies has aced all the cliches. To start after the opening narrative, which we've spoiled as to the true hero of the film, a fallen, glowing ball of 1980s special effects named Bodai. We cut to the dark and the introduction of Daniel on flashlight roller skates as he traverses into what appears to be an unlit bike path that spits you out to a talon. But no. It's only a shoddy metal barn that shelters the power switch that turns the lights onto the home turf that is the hodgepodge playing space for the Olympic-worthy roller lacrosse disc golf charades. This switch also cues the rest of the solar babies. Also cue the E-Police team known as the Scorpions. They play this game of extreme roller skate lacrosse all the while they have a chaperone in Grok watching them. It's unclear if there is an actual winner because somehow the E-Police show up uh, SWAT mode, and everybody runs. Of course, only the solar babies get away. Uh, the, the scorpions have won the tutelage of Grok. I guess he is their commander now. Uh, uh, after making their escape into Larray Caverns, the solar babies get split up. Well, they just lose Daniel because you have to lose the kid. Uh, Daniel is deaf and has electric ears in the form of Dr. Dre Beats headphones, but not for long because um, in his wild ride in the caverns on a minecart, they break. Oh no, but wait, this is where he finds Bodai, and all of a sudden, he can hear. Initiate wild animal mating calls. Upon Daniel's discovery of Bodai, uh, it's also around the same time the rest of the solar babies go freaked Panda, and remember, they have a child in their gang. This scene is very reminiscent of that scene in The Other Sister with Juliette Lewis, where she plays a mentally challenged woman in love with a mentally challenged man named, you guessed it, Daniel. But Giovanna Rabisi explaining how she needs him. The solar babies need Daniel because he gets them back. But if they call him, there's no chance. What? This charade continues into morning, where we find Daniel oogling over Bodai. Uh, then showing him in a hope, then shoving him in a hope chest while savagely asking him if he likes air. 
end scene. Next scene, we find out a pivotal point of the whole movie. The nearest water ration is over 100 miles away, according to the warden, who is sipping on his water like it's an Arnold Palmer on the back nine, but the only stroke he had in the game was a heat stroke. Fittingly, Grok wants the Solar Babies punished for the aforementioned night game of flashlight tag with a ball and hockey sticks. To which the warden chides, Were they winning? Some serious shit is about to go down. This is where we discover the name Solar Babies is menacing enough because they are winners. Grok kills a plant with his red-hot vape cane, and I'm sure there is an innuendo here somewhere, uh, but for the time, it seems like a cool weapon uh, for the time. Cut to a newsreel of eco-police beating people. We don't really even know who these people are. But, oh, wait, no, it's just a history lesson. This is also the part of the movie where we are gifted an exquisite example of comedy via Rabbit. But the laughter is cut short by the sweaty warden interrupting to call out the solar babies to the office or block or whatever it is that they're called to. The Solar Babies are reprimanded by the Warden for playing sand hockey on the outside because he will not run a prison and he wants victory on his turf. He's trying to raise orphans into viable agents of the E-Protectorate, damn it. Dig 10 cubic meters. No, make it 20. This is where the movie hits a plot twist of incredulous hilarity for me. The blonde leader of the Scorpions, who looks like the take-on-me guy, tries to cop a feel on Terra, where she avoids his aggressive advances by feigning a shovel hit to his nuts. Uh, Pain to the solar babies entering their room or shack or whatever that is, all sweaty and wishing to get out of their post-apocalyptic Captain America gear and get a water ration. Tara dreams out loud about rain, but it's in this book within a poem, and what? What is rain? This is also where they talk shit to Daniel, who I guess just was sitting on a fucking box all day because they think he can't hear them. But joke's on them! Thunder and lightning ensue, and all of a sudden, the sprinkler system is working in this shack again because it starts raining inside. This brings cleanliness and clarity to the solar babies, and they find out Daniel lost his $300 Dr. Dre beat headphones. But it's okay, because a glowing crystal ball fixed his ears. This is where the plot gets sinister. The solar babies decide Daniel must still be deaf, because nobody wants to hear what he has to say anyway. Plus, they're late for a chaperone roller skate fitness competition against the Scorpions. Also, this is where Jason Patrick, playing Jason, promos an audition for Michael and the Lost Boys because he threatens to break the blonde dude's neck if he touches Star. I mean, Tara, again. The best part about this scene is the synchronicity between the roller skating factions and the televised E-Protectorate beating whoever they are beating. Um, behind the scenes, side note, this movie was directed by Alan Johnson. Uh, Alan Johnson was, according to Wikipedia, an American choreographer who worked closely with Mel Brooks, who was a producer of Solar Babies. Ding, ding, ding. Uh, swerve. Hello. A la Brooks Films. The only thing he directed before Solar Babies, though, was to be or not to be. Uh, I think that was also a Mel Brooks film. Uh, a comedy, of course. Not a sci-fi movie. A fucking choreographer. Uh, this is my proof Brooks smoked mad herbals at the time because the aforementioned scene is so heavily choreographed that it looks like a number from West Side Story. Oh wait, he basically redid the choreography for West Side Story in live productions of it. Because when you're directing a sci-fi flick, there just better be a roller skate dance-off beatdown scene inserted. Moving on. 
And now, a sentimental moment between Jason and Bodai. Jason is lost, doesn't want to be a part of what he is seeing. That's when Bodai shows him his future. And there's water and nakedness. But that all gets interrupted by the rest of the solar babies, and Metrons need to see if Bodai is radioactive, to which he pulls out an instrument, stares at the orb, and can't figure it out. Time to use Bodai as a baseball and some flashlight disc golf. Cue synthesized dance break between Rabbit and Bodai. Then Jason decides to break the ball into a million little pieces, but it comes back together and unifies the solar babies. Oh yeah, I forgot. And while all this has been happening, the solar babies have been supported by performance by a sand finger painting vigilante named Darstar. We know he is the vigilante because he says next to nothing up to this point, and he has an owl. Oh, and he steals Bodai. Next thing you know, Daniel is missing again. Tara and Jason kiss. Then they plan a rescue mission to get Daniel with the rest of the solar babies. But they vote on it. And um, they're voting if they should go because that whole power unification vibe Bodai gave them doesn't mean shit now that he's gone. Votes in, they go. So they escape the prison command in the desert on a, I'm sorry, the prison compound in the desert on a paved path because, you know, roller skates. They also bring their hockey lacrosse sticks and gear because there's probably a wicked climactic disc golf lacrosse curling game being foreshadowed. Plot twist. We find out Darstar is a Chikani, but shh, don't tell him that because he's not supposed to know. It's the law. Grok proceeds to call everyone douches to build his sinister attitude. Continuing on. And another plot twist. If Grok catches the solar babies and Derp Star, they will be surgically altered. It's the law, people. Cut to the solar babies and what is this? A musical interlude. Time out. You know what the tragedy of this like whole movie is? For all of his awards and hit records... Smokey Robinson never gets any accolades for the powerful theme song he offers in this masterpiece. Sad. Okay, so at this point, Grok and his henchmen are chasing the Solar Babies through the paved desert in their cardboard cutout utility vehicles, and this is where we get to see some amazing roller skate parkour stunt work. Gaps! The camera work is really amazing here, and Johnson makes the three-foot void seem like a 20-foot void magically. Solar Babies make it across on skates but the E-Police can't pass it on their motorcycles. Hmm. Cut to Darstar having a telepathic talk with his owl. Then he arrives at Tire Town, which is filled with dirty, water-deprived, horny people who declare him Chikani. My bad. It's not Tire Town yet. I just ruined the movie for you, probably. Probably not. Uh, cat's out of the bag because he calls himself Darstar. The leader of these Chikani knows right away Darstar has something. So he immediately takes him to some shit-talking old man who's probably salty about Darstar because Darstar has an owl and this old man only has dirty pigeons. They pull out Bodai and the Chikani leader and old man want to sell it. Next scene. The owl gives all the Chikani a lecture about being aware and an attack is coming. But the Chikani leader is unprepared because he is too busy being horny and dry-humping a random. During the attack by the E-Police, that blonde dude that tried to cop a feel on Terra kills the owl. Darstar is sad. Conveniently, the next morning, the solar babies arrive and find the dead owl. And I don't know if it's supposed to be like a parable or something. Genius, but Rabbit is the one who finds the dead owl. Irony. 
So out of respect for the guy who started all this shit in the first place by stealing the ball and causing Daniel to leave again, they bury his out. Darstar watches them, though, in the distance. He's still sad. Cue the triumphant bad guy music. So the bad guys, or E-Police, and Grok arrive at Jurassic Park, where they are prepositioned by raptors. No, they're just mercenaries looking for work and water. Foreshadowing. All of a sudden, Grok and Blonde Guy are in a lab, putting holographic ants on the horny Chikani. He shits himself, then they take him away. Grok hasn't gotten his fill of evil deeds, so he takes it out on Blonde Dude by torturing his hand. Holographically. Go to the next plot twist. These fuckers don't have or can't find water, but they arrive in a cave and less than five seconds in, they find a beer. I mean, the man's brew. You got me. All of a sudden, they find a cave painting of the Wraith and Khan from Star Trek II. Interesting. Cut to E-Police entering their headquarters in one of the funniest scenes, I swear to God. The blonde dude is in one of the cardboard cars and threatening and taunting these Dobermans with flashlights on their heads. And he's like barking and more vicious than these dogs. That's the scene. Um, yeah, that, that's it. Um, I really don't remember this movie when I was younger. And I watched a lot of shit. But I imagine if I had, I would have been out on roller skates with flashlights immediately looking for Beats headphones and a glowing ball of magic. Uh, I probably really would have. I mean, uh, I did the weirdest shit after watching movies. Like, I saw Ninja Turtles and I thought I was like a fucking Ninja Turtle coming out of the theater. Uh, anyway. Um, so at this point, I need to address something. This movie was produced by Mel Brooks. Yes, Mel Brooks. Spaceballs, Young Frankenstein, High Anxiety, that Mel Brooks. And as the story goes, he invested $1.5 million of his own personal money into this film. I mean, he put a second mortgage on his home for I guess what he thought was going to be his Mad Max epic. And the total cost of this film was like $25 million. And guess how much it did in the box office in 1986? 1.6 million. <laughs> like, of course it was going to be star. It was going to beat star. Go to the next plot twist. These fuckers don't even. I mean, they don't have or can't find water, but they arrive in a cave, and less than five seconds in this thing, they find beer. That's right, the man's brew. You got me. All of a sudden, they find a cave painting of the Wrath and Khan from Star Trek II, uh, which is pretty interesting. Uh, then we cut to the E-Police entering their headquarters and one of the funniest scenes, I shit you not, of this movie. The blonde dude, he's in this cardboard cutout thing, uh, car, and he's taunting these Dobermans as they're entering. These Dobermans have flashlights on their head, and the, the blonde-haired guy is more vicious than these fucking dogs. It's pretty funny. That's the scene. That's it. Um, you know, I really don't remember this movie when I was younger and I watched a lot of shit, but I really think like, had I watched it at the time, I probably would have been like running outside with a fucking flashlight on my roller skates and like looking for like glowing orbs and dumb shit. Uh, I, I say this because like when I was, you know, came coming out of the theater for the Ninja Turtle movie, I fucking thought I was a Ninja Turtle, uh, like straight out of the, the exit, like kicking and punching and shit. Yeah, I was, I was special back then. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I also need to address something else. Um, this movie was produced by Mel Brooks. Yes, Spaceballs, Young Frankenstein, High Anxiety, that Mel Brooks. And as the story goes, he invested $1.5 of his own personal money into this film. 
I mean, he put a second mortgage on his home for, I guess, what he thought was going to be like his Mad Max epic. Uh, and the total cost of this film was like $25 million. And guess how much it made in the box office in 1986? $1.6 million. Like, of course it was going to beat Star Trek IV. Um, but, okay, okay, back to the climax of this movie. So we're in the evil lair with the giant claw and Ursa. Yes, Ursa from Superman, because I guess her and General Zod got tired of, that, of their failed attempts at Superman. So she goes to this movie, Solar Babies, and is like, I got this evil plan, right? Um, so she creates this claw that they're going to use on Bodai, and it has the magnetic power of Earth, and it can hold a comet. So the writing of this film is spectacular, um, you know, along with the special effects. Um, and, uh, I, oh, yeah, I messed up earlier. I said something about the Solar Babies entering Tire Town, but uh, that was like the Chicani campsite. Now they enter Tire Town, and we know this because they walk under a big fucking sign that says Tire Town, and uh, one of them says, what is this place? And Tara says, oh, it's Tire Town. Um, and I, I'm guessing that she's the only one who can read now that I think back about her reading that book or whatever. Um, but this is where another plot twist happens. We discover that mercenaries are now chasing the solar babies. Tara has a South Carolina palm tree tattoo on her hand, and she looks good in a hat with a hula skirt on it. And the rest of the solar babies pretend they're extras from the last dragon movie. So many twists and turns in this thing. <sighs> yeah. So Tire Town is like a mining town, you know, where they melt tires down to filter it into, uh, I think it's water. I think it's water because they like they ration the shit out to the workers, and uh, oh what voila, Darstar works here. So he didn't disappear all those times. He just had to work his shift in Tire Town, and then I shit you not, they ration what little water they have in this movie, but they have a Brinks truck that I guess Darstar threw Bodai in and made a padlock code for. It's sixty six by the way, and there's Bodai, a little dull and sad. And this is where Metron gets owned by Terra because he has a future while the rest just have to keep dreaming about things like hearing and water. Oh, but wait, here come the E-Police. Have to run away again, but first, a well-choreographed pole dancing fight scene. Bedlam ensues, but when you have roller skates, escape is a piece of cake. So what do they do? Well now, it's time for tire rolling down a hill. But Terra gets left behind. Oh no, tire town explodes. The end. No, not the end. There's still 25 minutes left in this rom-com, people. So the remaining solar babies, all the dudes, say some nice words about Tara, and then Jason stares around like he's having a flare-up, but he's probably just... Just... What is he doing? I don't know what he's doing. Oh my god, I'm out of place. It's okay. He's probably just wondering where that weird noise is coming from. Duh! It's Bodai. And guess where he's at? In the clutches of Ursa's giant claw machine. Magnet blaster thing. Just to add a little fire in the pants, Ursa promises to make sure Grok is not bored. Wink, wink. Cut to. Dude, this movie has like 250 scenes in a 90-minute movie. Uh, so anyway, we find that the Solar Babies can escape the E-Police, but not the mercenaries. But lo and behold, a lone person emerges from the sand and goads the mercenaries with water. Who is this vision of the dunes? Surprise! It's Tara! Didn't see that coming. So now the mercs are outnumbered and sent back on their way, where Daniel, 
the deaf one talk shit by telling them to take it easy and get a suntan. That's cool. Um, I wonder how high Mel Brooks was at this point of production. Um, like, he had to be looking at the dailies and thinking that Anne, his wife, Anne Bancroft, was going to leave him over this immaculate toilet bowl of a film he just shitted one and a half million dollars on. Not to mention the other $25 million he had to do the work to obtain. But I digress. For some reason, Solar Baby still holds a nostalgic piece of my heart. Proceed. Okay, so Tara takes the rest of the team to her new home, the Oasis. This place has everything. Tropical fauna, Lascaux cave paintings, and a poor man's Charlton Heston playing Moses explaining to these kids how ice cream from a glacier melts into water and that is an oasis. Swerve! We meet Green Tree. Tara's dad. He instantly adopts the solar babies, and now they have a daddy. But Jason has to get to the bottom of this. This being where Bodai is, uh, Tara tells him, and now that they have water to spare, they are wet and they make out. Time to go to battle. Oh, and the bad guy headquarters is called the Aqua Bunker. Cool. So Bodai is being beamed with special effects lasers like you had on your school pictures and all, and Ursa and M. Bison have managed to do is make him look like a marble swirl bowling ball. But he keeps coming back for more. Cue climax. Cue weird science lightning effects. Fail. Bring out Terminix. Not the pest control company. No. Mm -mm. The cardboard cutout sibling to the utility vehicles of this police comedy. Terminix has a drill that will shatter Bodai and a hankering to enjoy it. Why? Because technology. So Terminex comes out and is just ready to battle a bowling ball. Meanwhile, the Solar Babies open the gates of Jurassic Park and bypass the Dobermans with flashlights on their heads and make their way into the base by climbing ladders on roller skates. They release Darstar, who was in a holding cell. All the while, Terminek is going through all of the 52 carbide, bi carbide bits he got at Home Depot last weekend, but still can't penetrate Bodai. Balls of steel. After a scuffle with some extras from the Wrath, Daniel grabs Bodai. Ursa grabs Bodai, and he pushes her into a fax machine where she catches fire. <laughs> Amazing. Then Gray Variant M. Bison comes from nowhere and grabs Daniel and Bodai and wants to know about Daniel's ball, the perv. Then Terminek turns babyface and crushes Grok's arm. Then the aha guy shouts M. Bison, shoots M. Bison in the face? <laughs> what the hell is going on here? Now the dam and building are about to blow. The solar babies escape. The dam breaks. And water floods everywhere. The solar babies gaze into the night sky as they... I drew a blank, guys. Okay, no, 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 I'm sorry. Yeah, they gaze into the night sky. Yep. Um, as if they were seeing Falcor in the air. But no, it's just a thundercloud. A real thundercloud. The solar babies are amazed, and the water is free again, and Bodai is healed. For all their efforts, Bodai dips out on the solar babies, but not really. He just breaks into pieces and becomes one with all the solar babies. Now they are electric, and he is always with them. Rejoice! Then the credits roll as the solar babies go to skinny dip in a body of water. The end. And the fuck? That is what you'll say after watching this movie. Yes.
for you, ladies and gentlemen, children of the earth, I have wasted 90 minutes of my life more than one time watching this movie. And I would just like to add, if I may, a couple bits from reviews on Solar Babies when it came out. These <laughs> gems. Um, from Patrick Bromley of F This Movie. This was like probably um, my favorite. He said, in the future, everyone will roller skate. This is the future posited by the 1986 sci-fi post-apocalyptic teen movie Roller Babies. <laughs> directed by former Mel Brooks choreographer Alan Johnson. So I'm going to skip a couple of things. Uh, he said, um, this is my first viewing of Solar Babies, and it is the kind of movie that's so bad it makes your head explode, trying to keep up with all of the terrible choices being made by everyone involved. It is, in many ways, the logical conclusion of the genre-happy 80s, a conclusion that arrived four years before the decade was even over, because that's how fucking stupid Solar Babies is. It killed the 1980s. There was so much science fiction in the decade, and so much of it was directed at teenagers and kids, that a movie like Solar Baby somehow made it past the what the fuck are you talking about, you're fired stage of the filmmaking process. Beautiful. Because that's exactly what the fuck I was thinking when I watched this fucking thing. And uh, it was pretty funny. Um, and for what it's worth, comment or comment, excuse me, current times, Rotten Tomatoes, Gave this thing, like, I think 46%, um, or whatever it is, 46, uh, percent viewing, 43% liked it, um, you know, the audience score, user ratings, it was like 3,000, um, and, you know, it's just, I, I guess this is what I'm going to say. It doesn't make any sense, and it really does have plot, plot twists out the ass. But, you know, if you're like me, you're a pop culture enthusiast, whatever. And I know I kind of sound like I was shitting on the movie, and I was, because it deserved it. Um, and I just think it was funny that way. Um, I do want to say that it's important that you got to take these movies for what the times are now to when it was then with like a grain of salt and realize like this probably would be a badass movie if it was done today, you know? Um, with that being said, um, in epilogue to my first episode of the Oh Yeah Dig It podcast show, I wanted to express to you guys what will be a rating system for these movies that I am commenting or reviewing. Macho Man Randy Savage was a famous pro wrestler throughout the 80s and 90s. He was my favorite, and his popularity transcended his occupation. Many people, wrestling fans or not, know who Macho Man is, and what they may not know is that he was one of, and in my opinion, the best guys to shoot a promo or interview, for those of you who don't know uh, in the business. One of his more famous promos was one where he proclaims he is the cream of the crop. It's pretty good. But for a rating system, I'm going to be using a five creamer rating standard. Five creamers being equivalent to five stars and one being, you know, one star respectively. It's one way I'd like to pay homage and understand that sometimes a bad movie may get a five creamer rating and a great movie may get a one creamer. There are variables that will lead up to my decisions. 
um, which will have me unjustifiably in a position that I'd rather not be in. Yeah! So for Solar Babies, it's shit, but it fits the 80s criteria and nostalgia for me. I give it three creamers. I recommend it if you're looking for a drinking game material or if, like me, you just like shitty 80s sci-fi. And with that, I want to say thank you again for all my listeners on the first episode. Again, you can find me at on Twitter at Oh Yeah Dig It Show and on Facebook at Oh Yeah Dig It. Until next time, I'm Justin Gregory saying, Oh yeah, dig it.